Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. When it comes to money, do you ever worry if you're going to be okay? What's the difference between being rich and being wealthy? And does more money really mean we'll have more of what we truly want in life? Brian Portnoy knows money. He's dealt with billions of dollars in his years in the hedge fund and mutual fund industries. But what about meaning? Today, we discuss how to get off the hamster wheel of chasing more money learn how to zero in on what truly matters, and then use money as a tool to fund the experiences we most want to have. Welcome to The New Man. Today, we're talking with Brian Portnoy. He is head of education at Magnetar Capital. He's also the author of The Investor's Paradox and The Geometry of Wealth. You can learn more about him by visiting shapingwealth.com. Brian, thanks for talking today. My pleasure. Yeah. So, you know, I uh, I had Paul Ollinger on the on the show recently, and he, he, he dropped a little bit. Of, that's how I found out about you, and I started digging around. And this conversation around money, even though lots of guys are listening to this podcast and they're wanting more meaning and more purpose and more passion and more alignment in their lives, the the big anchor, this big thing that kind of governs so much in their life is money. It comes down to money. And, and yet, as you point out in your book, uh, we're isolated around it. We're all dealing with this thing, but we tend to not talk about it. We tend to deal with it very privately, even though we might show our peacock feathers in a certain way, we might be really struggling in a certain way. So I'm curious, give us a window into your world of dealing with literally billions of dollars, but also lots of different personalities and people. I mean, is what's up with this whole isolation thing that comes up around money? What, what does money really mean to us and why is it so private? Yeah, it's a, it's a great big question to start off with. And before we get into markets and hedge funds and mutual funds and, and, and all the noise that fills the capital markets, we have to start with a mirror and to look at ourselves and to recognize that money is a deeply emotional topic. 
Um, and that if you think about the evolution of the human brain, if you think about the evolution of the human species, uh, money as we now use it and think about it really didn't exist um, until you know relatively recently in, in, in the grand scheme of history. And if you look at what we evolved to do over the, the millennia, it, it was to survive and thrive in a dangerous place. So we have, you know, we have a fear reflex that's unbelievably nuanced, um, you know, that rustling in the bushes, that sight of something on the horizon, you know, we're wired in a very precise way to, you know, fend off and, and, and avoid that danger. That personality or identity or wiring makes it very difficult for us to navigate money life. And when I talk about money life um, in the book and elsewhere, it's just not investing. It's not just stocks and bonds. It's more important earning. I mean, think about earning. It's quote unquote making a living. It's a very loaded phrase. Um, it's saving, it's spending, as well as in, in investing and, and, and a variety of other things. So you know, we're actually hardwired to make pretty lousy decisions about money. A lot of our instincts go against the grain of, of basic personal finance. And, you know, there's this field of um, behavioral finance that I operate in that was invented by uh, some psychologists, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And one of the main practitioners now, an, an economist at, at, uh, at University of Chicago named Richard Thaler, his definition, and he just won the Nobel Prize in behavioral finance. Uh, he, his, his definition of behavioral finance. I love it's the, mm -hmm. it's, it's people aren't stupid. The world is hard. Um, it's really hard. And so to come, you know, to put a pin in your exact question, money is a very emotional topic and it's something that we're just not comfortable talking about. It's something we're really not equipped to talk about, you know, if you think about the socialization process uh, that we all go through, um, which has a gender element to it, um, we're, we're, we're not socialized to learn how to engage these things. So it's something that husband and wife, parents and children, best friends, you know, out for the night, we just never talk about it. Is this a cultural thing or is this part of a programming in our society? It's like, look, if we don't encourage them to talk about it, we can make managing money really complex and then we can kind of take advantage of people in that way. Is there is a grand conspiracy of that or is it more natural to us? I mean, is this cross-cultural where we just don't talk about this thing? Yeah, I, I'd say it's, it, it's first and foremost a homo sapiens thing. It's a human thing. Um, there are, and there's been studies of this, some cross-cultural differences, the U S versus the Nordic countries versus Japan. And, and I don't know those nuances well enough. And I, I actually think they're of secondary importance anyway. You know, if we're really talking about American society and, and there are specific, you know, socialization elements, combine that with our deep genetic wiring, um, we, we really don't want to get into it. I mean, I've seen studies that show that, you know, partners are more comfortable discussing infidelity than they are their checking accounts. Uh, if you think about hanging out with your buddies and what you know about their relationships or their health status or what's going on at work, do you know if they have a balance sheet? Do you, do you know if they have a lot of debt? Now, keep in mind, like we see other people's assets 
but we never see their debts. And having a balance sheet is is critically important to having a healthy money life. It seems like at the core of it is this. You mentioned this in the book. It's like a re- this deep question of money's tied to this deep question of am I going to be okay, right? So even though I'm driving in my nice car and I've got Wi-Fi in my car, like whatever, all these comforts, there's still this deep seated survival. This this fear of am I going to be okay? And it has me wonder if success is just an extension of that. Am I going to be okay? Where we create way more than we could possibly need, but it's because we're coming from that fear-based, uh, more primitive, animalistic part of ourselves, we're still driven to, no, I want, they're still rustling in the bushes. I need more, more, more. You talk about in the book, the difference between being rich and being wealthy. Uh, can how do, how do you separate those two ideas? Yeah, this is an important fork in the road. So I, I describe being rich as just having more money. Or, or the things, especially the material things that money buys. And, you know, we do live, and this is a U.S. specific comment, we live in a very materialistic society uh, where nicer homes, nicer cars, uh, nicer vacations that you tell people about and plaster all over social media, um, going to a better college and so on and so forth. Um, that's, that, that's part of being rich. And there's an enormous amount of social psychology show that shows that beyond a pretty basic income, more money doesn't make you more happy. Um, I define wealthy uh, very differently as the ability to underwrite a meaningful life, meaning that, um, and, and I and I kind of coined the, the the phrase funded contentment. So you know, one thing I've noticed because I've been in the financial services industry for you know, more than two decades now, is that that there's a basic assumption that drives all of finance, which is that more is better. Okay. Hey, you're making a hundred grand a year, rather make 200, making 200, I'd rather make half a million. What, what, you know, pick, pick any numbers in, in any sort of context, more is better. But we know from decades of rock solid psychological and now neuroscientific research that getting more doesn't necessarily equate to having a better quality of life. It certainly doesn't equate to having a more meaningful life. And so when I talk about wealth as the ability to under, uh, un- underwrite meaning, well, that puts the onus on us, I think in a good way, but maybe a slightly uncomfortable way to say, well, what is a meaningful life? And we can you know, maybe, maybe talk about some of the variables that I-, I think are important and would love to get your perspective as well. And then you ask, okay, so you go through that somewhat difficult set of questions, like what, what's a meaningful life? What is true joy really to me? And then you ask this question, mm-hmm. well, can I afford those things? Huh, can I afford joy? Can I afford meaning? Well, that's very different than saying that, you know, I, I want the new Audi A8, um, or I want to upgrade to the six-bedroom home from the four-bedroom home or whatever. Um to ask whether you can afford the meaningful things in life, I think, creates a somewhat uncomfortable but ultimately very productive dialogue, maybe in your own head, maybe with your partner, maybe with your children, maybe with your parents, maybe with your friends' community to say, okay, these are the things that are really important to me. What's involved with affording those? Because I think one of the problems we have in our society is this stock phrase, oh, money doesn't buy happiness. Oh, we all know that money doesn't buy happiness. Well, 
in certain ways it does. And secondly, money is an inescapable part of our lives. You know, money life, earning, saving, spending, investing, insuring, managing risk, all these things. Think about the number of times every day where you're making a money-related decision. You're at work and making money. You're going to the store. You're buying stuff online. You're saving for your kid's college. Whatever it is, there's probably you know, dozens and dozens of transactions every, every week and every month that add up to hundreds and thousands of decisions on a yearly basis. So one thing that we don't want to do is say, well, money, money doesn't buy happiness, therefore money isn't important. We have to sort of take the sober reality that money is really important, but we need to come to terms with it in the proper context. Yeah, I think the way you described the process just a minute ago was, I would call it self-leadership, right? I, if I'm just on the treadmill and I'm following the herd, then mm-hmm. it's easy to not lead myself, but to simply follow and just say, well, more is more, right? My, if I work for a corporation, they're going to hang the carrot out in front of me that more is more and that I, I, I should move up the ladder so I can earn more. I, I look around, hey, my, my friends bought a bigger house. We should buy a bigger house too. There's just, we can get on that path. But if I, what you described and you said it happens between our ears is this self-leadership of, wait a second, what actually has me feel more whole? What actually has me feel more joy? Where's that contentment? I might find that it's not when I'm in the process of trying to prove or trying to please or trying to protect. It may not happen when I'm just following the expectations of others. It comes back to that place where, yeah, who am I really? And now we're into that self-actualization conversation. We're in a much deeper conversation, which most of us aren't really doing, right? We're, we're, we're pretty content, or I don't know if we're content, but we're really all we know is to just simply go along with the flow and follow the other. So that aspect of self-leadership, when you talk about funding a uh, funding contentment, what are those aspects? So if we could help this guy dial in his own self-leadership, what are those components that you, that you uh, have revealed are, are part of that contentment? Yeah, so yeah, the, this, this is really on point. So I, I, I think of it this way, that there are um, an identifiable set of things in life that can bring a deeper sense of contentment. Now, I call them the four C's, uh, just a simple mnemonic, um, meaning, uh, four, four words that begin with C, uh, connection, control, competence, and context. Let's kind of go through them relatively quickly and, and, and dive in wherever you like. So the first is connection. You know, we have a deep seated genetic need to belong to a group. We, we are social creatures, um, through and through it's, it's not a nice to have, it's a must have. Uh, which is why loneliness is, you know, such a detrimental and, and ultimately deathly, you know, condition. So that need to belong to a community, and now via technology over the last 100, 150 years, they can be what we might call virtual communities. <clears throat> you know, you can talk to people on the phone, or you can be in a social media group or whatever. But that, you know, coming back to where we've been for hundreds of thousands of years, that in-person connection to people that you feel an affinity to, there's probably nothing more important to that sense of belonging. The second element, what I call control, others call autonomy, is quite different, which is that sense of being in control of your own destiny, your ability to chart your own course. You know, we can throw out big words like liberty, opportunity, choice, freedom, 
when you take those away from us, we don't feel good. Um, you know, taking away one's freedom mm-hmm. or limiting choices is not something we're particularly comfortable with. So we, we, we want to have autonomy. We want to be able to go where we want to go, do what we want to do. And we also want to have the chance to tell our own story. The third uh, bucket I'll mm-hmm. just call competence. Um, uh, me, uh, and here I'm talking about work. Work is a deep part of our identity. When you go to a party, what's the first thing somebody tends to ask you? It's, what do you do? They don't care what you do. What they care is who you are. And they want to have a sense of your identity. What's, what's meaningful to you in your day-to-day? It could be your day job. It could be some other hobby or, or, or vocation. But, you know, and, and this is a bigger and probably very different topic, but when you think about the changes in the nature of labor over the last couple decades and that sense of dislocation you feel when you leave the factory and you're not using your hands and it's now service oriented, it's digital, um, and, and you don't feel as connected to your work, that mean that that has important implications for living a meaningful life or not. And then the fourth bucket I call context, and it's the idea that you know we've learned through scientific research that people who feel that they are connected to something bigger than themselves tend to be happier in in the deeper sense, have more meaningful lives. Religion is the the the, the obvious. Uh, uh, thing to talk about here, that sense of being connected to to something bigger. But, you know, patriotism and nationalism also um, also very important. But um, we shouldn't downplay other things like sports team loyalty. Like I grew up in Pittsburgh. I'm I bleed black and gold. So do my sons. And it's just part of who we are. And that's a really real thing. That's not some ephemeral, weird, trivial thing like we're part of Steeler Nation. And, um, uh, but you know, uh, that sense that you're connected to something bigger than yourself and that it's about something more than you, um, is critically important. So when I take those four categories and when you have those four, just on a piece of paper, you can begin to say, which of these is important to me? And it's not a competition among them. What I've done in my own personal life, and I've done this with my wife, is, you know, think back over our few decades on the planet and ask, well, what's been important to us? And what you find out, what we found out is that at different points in life, there are different sources of meaning, or to put it differently, um, different things matter at different times. Sometimes it's more about career. Sometimes it's more about community. Sometimes it's just, hey, I got to I got to get out on the road. I got to do my own thing. Those are going to vary over time, but I kind of use this mental model as a way to ask what's meaningful to me, which then leads to, you know, what I've referred to as sort of the awkward question. Well, how do I then afford those things? Because you can't do almost any of them without some money in the bank. Yeah. And I find, I don't wonder if you find this too, but I find that a lot of times we, we, you know, here's the one I, th- I hear is like, I have to figure out how to make money from my passion, whatever that is, right? I've got a thing in my life. So we put this money, we try to bolt our our money issues onto the things that have us feel the four C's, as you say, instead of seeing money as a thing that empowers us to have those things. Does that make sense? That's the, 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 a, a bit of a discernment there. But I find that a lot of guys yeah. are kind of eclipsing 
the four C's in their life, as you would put it, because they don't see a way to make money doing that, or they don't see it as a direct way to create more money. They've made money the whole point, or creating money more more of the whole point for themselves. Yeah, so what you're doing, and I think it's the right thing, is that well, we're flipping the script. So when we talk about um, you know wealth being the ability to underwrite a meaningful life, or if we're talking about funding contentment, when we flip the script, we start with contentment or we start with meaning. And then we go to the funding part, the way the financial services industry is organized, you know, because it's mostly about selling you things is, you know, it's about getting, having more money, um, you know, making great investments or having a better savings rate or a better insurance policy or what, what, whatever it is. But when you flip the script, um, you, uh, you're then going in the right direction. You're answering the, the important question first, and then you're going to the second one second, and, and that's the way it should be. The other thing that you pointed out that's really important, and, and this is a cultural thing, and it's partly a gendered thing, is that for many men, work is their identity. And so, you know, you can end up having a very healthy relationship to work, which fulfills you outside of a monetary sense, but also pays you well, or you can, or you might have a pathological relationship to work where you end up doing something you don't want to do, but you, you're getting paid well. And as a result, it's, you make excuses like, well, I don't really like what I'm doing. I, I wish I could switch gigs or switch careers or just like call a timeout and then go do something completely different. Um, but because I'm making okay money, I can use that to fund the other things that matter to me. I mean, this is really where we get into, you know, very personal taste and, and personal preferences as to how you want to do it. Because some people do work for their passion and look, if you could work your passion and make a lot of money at it, that's like a rare, but I think fantastic way to be. Um, I think it's more common to see people do something that they like, hopefully, but then make money to do, to do other things. Um, uh, or they accept that whatever their passion is, isn't going to pay them well. And, you know, they're relatively, you know, relatively happy with that. I mean, I, one of my closest friends from college going back 25, 28 years, whatever it is, He's an environmental guy, and starting twenty like twenty five plus years ago, he's a what became a forest ranger. Lives in the woods. He's lived in the woods for twenty five years, and he absolutely loves it. I don't think he's making um, you know seven figure income as a as a forest ranger, but he's living his passion, and he has funded contentment. Yeah. But it's very personal to him. Yeah, I think that's the that's a bold move, right? It's like, well, everybody kind of expects that we, we can create this idea that everybody cares what we do, and then there, that mm -hmm. there's this path we're supposed to go on and be quote successful or whatever. But it's like, well, that might not jive with what actually where my contentment is, and that's that's where we we make a bold choice to go do the thing that has us be content, even though it may not have us measure up in terms of identity as men and what we do in the world and that kind of stuff. And and I think that's where we'll sacrifice. Uh, we'll compromise our, our contentment in order to, to to look good to others. I wanted to ask you about the you know in in your you said your first book was was uh, the investor's paradox was essentially about getting rich and that you and that you you didn't really want to talk about that anymore. I was wondering if there what happened for you. You just kind of alluded to it a little bit in the geometry of wealth that you wanted to change course a bit. Can you describe what happened between that first book and the second book for you? 
Yeah, you know, it's it's just part of my personal journey. So, you know, been in the financial services business for for a long time and um you know, wrote the investor's paradox, which is very much a behavioral finance book, so applying psychological principles to decision making within the context of choosing good mutual funds, good hedge funds, good, you know, good investments generally as I met financial advisors and clients, literally in the hundreds and, and, and thousands, you know, I met a lot of people. I, it, it dawned upon me that the real question that almost everybody was asking, all of the clients were asking was, am I going to be okay? Not, am I going to beat the market? Or is this mid-cap value fund the best one that we could buy? Or is this exactly the right insurance policy? Or whatever the decision was. There was a, a deeper set of questions that were clearly on the table for which the vocabulary is less accessible, the, the conversation is more emotionally difficult. So when I combined my own personal journey with you know, growing children and aging parents, pivoting away from you know, pure investment decision making, and then just being out in the world and realizing that, man, everybody in their own way is sort of on the same page in terms of this big question, am I going to be okay? It's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to write a book about that. Mm. And, and I really tried to dive into the deep end in terms of the psychology and neuroscience and sociology of money and how it relates to personal happiness. Yeah, that's, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. You know, especially when you, you, you mentioned this number, I don't know what the study was, but essentially that after our, our basic needs are taken care of, and I guess they, they circled this number, what, 75 grand a year, whatever that, that means, but essentially uh, at that point, money is more effective at diminishing sadness than increasing happiness. What what's happening for us when we when we cross that line? And, and do you see investment and in, in our approach to money kind of a, a, um, embracing that more and recognizing that more is not necessarily more, but it, but we can after a certain point, it's it's really about funding that contentment, as you say. Yeah, so the number you threw out there, seventy-five thousand dollars, is is used quite widely uh, in the scholarship uh, by economists and, and and psychologists and so forth. Um, that number is a little bit difficult um, to use as a general rule, just because seventy-five k in Manhattan, New York, is not the same as seventy-five k in Manhattan, Kansas. Um, it, that's also an income level. It's not, a, you know, a, a measure of your total assets. It, you know, we can make it more complicated, but let's let's not do that. The point is that once you can afford wherever you are in a small town or in a big city to afford the basic necessities of life, having a, a good roof over your head, having your kids go to a decent school, being able to have three solid meals a day go on a vacation every now and then. Once you can achieve that, let's just call it solid middle-class lifestyle, the the day-to-day happiness that we feel does not have any relationship to higher levels of income. So let's go 10x and say you're making $750,000 a year. Um, that, That, what I call experienced happiness, there's no statistical evidence to show that it's higher. There is some new scholarship uh, that refers to what I call reflective happiness, what other scholars call life satisfaction, which is that deeper sense of meaning, uh, that idea that you're living a good life. It, it's not your day-to-day mood. It, it's actually a different function in the brain. The thing is, contrary to that $75,000 number, some of the current scholarship is showing that 
at higher and higher income levels, you can actually achieve more and more life satisfaction because if done, spent properly, you can use your money, your, your, your assets to do things that are very meaningful to you, right. uh, meaningful for your family meaningful for your community. And so there are wise ways to spend, whether it be on experiences or being charitable or affording conveniences and lack of aggravation. And the last point I'd make here, and and you made brief reference to it, is that happiness and sadness are not opposite ends of the same spectrum. Those are different emotions. And and there's newer scholarship that shows that uh, more money does relate to less sadness and the scholarship's new, so what the causal variables are, a little bit hard to say, but the way I think about it, the way I speculate, is that if we are fundamentally creatures who need to survive every day to avoid hardship, you know, to protect ourselves before we reach for the stars, you know, Casey Kasem, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching That's for right. the stars. For, long for, distance. For, first, <laughs> yeah, yeah, long, long, distance, <laughs> long distance dedication to Casey Kasem and social psychology. You keep your feet on the, on the ground first and you protect yourself. When you have more money and you've thought about it constructively, your ability to be safe is is that much more. We could ground it in very basic things like if the roof leaks you can fix it or you can afford somewhere to live where the roof is never going to leak. If your car breaks down on the way to work, that's an absolute source of aggravation. You can avoid that by having a nicer car or access right. to you know, sort of premium road service. Like You can go from the profound to the very practical yeah. quite quickly uh, in, in, in this conversation. And that relationship between money and sadness is one that we should think about. All right. Great. Uh, Brian Portnoy, his most recent book, the stuff that we've been talking about today, uh, is all included in the geometry of wealth. And you can learn more about him at shapingwealth.com. Brian, thanks so much. My pleasure. If these interviews are helping you, then please visit The New Man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.